Good morning. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer once again. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you, Father. We thank you for this time that we can dive into your word to get a further glimpse of your glory, to recognize who you are and who we are, Father. We thank you as we come together and praise you corporately as the body of Christ. What a privilege we have here. We thank you so much. We ask that you be with us now. Let your spirit work mightily in us and through us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John, and we will specifically be looking at John 8, verse 12. One verse we're going to get through this morning. So open your Bibles to John 8, verse 12. And here Jesus is continuing to dialogue with the religious leaders which we have seen time and time again. And he says this to them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. This is the second of the seven I am statements found in the Gospel of John. The first I am statement that we saw was in John 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this morning, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The I am statements were saying something significant about Jesus. Christ was giving clarity of who he actually was. But to understand these I am statements, we need to be familiar with the Old Testament. We have to go back to Moses where God spoke to him in the burning bush. And God said, I want you to be my man. I want you, Moses, to go and rescue my people from captivity, from Egyptian slavery. It's not said exactly like that, but that's me paraphrasing. And Moses thinks about that and says to God, I don't think I'm qualified for this job. So he begins to make excuses and tells God why he isn't the right man. It's sort of ironic to say the the all-knowing God, right, that you're not qualified for the thing he's asking you to do, right? And in the middle of that dialogue between Moses and God, Moses asks God a question in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. He says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So God tells Moses to tell the people that the great I am sent you. And at first, you may be thinking that's sort of an odd name, right? But God calling himself this was significant because it meant three distinct realities about God. Number one. It meant that God was the self-existing one. 
God has no beginning, nor does he have an end. He has always been, the Bible says. Wrap your mind around that this morning, right? Secondly, God calling himself the great I am meant that he was incomprehensible, which simply means God blows our minds. He is beyond our thinking. He is beyond our comprehension. He is beyond our existence. We can't begin to understand the awesomeness of the God we serve. Amen? In other words, all the brains in the world can't fathom who God is. Finite man can't grasp the magnitude of an infinite God. And finally, this name, I am meant that God is faithful. This is some really good news, that he is reliable, that he is dependable. Whatever he promises, or whatever he says, or whatever he concludes, comes to fruition. It will come to pass. It will take place. You can take God's word to the bank, amen? And Jesus was using the same language to describe who he was. He was attributing these same qualities to himself. In other words, he was saying that he was God. That he was saying that he was deity. He was saying he was God in the flesh. He was equal with the Father in all respects. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But what exactly does Christ mean by calling himself the light of the world? I mean, it sounds great, but we have to understand the reality of darkness to grasp the significance of Christ being the light of the world, right? Well, let me give an illustration to explain the importance of understanding the depth of darkness that we have in this world. Last week, during devotions with the children, we went over this very same passage. They like to help me out with my messages, so I go through it with them. And, John, and we went through John 8, 12, where Jesus said, He is the light of the world. So I asked the boys how they felt when they were in the dark. And they said half-heartedly, You know, Daddy, it's scary. But I could tell they weren't really into it. They weren't really recognizing the gravity of the darkness. They weren't really remembering the fear that they often have when they have to go to bed because they're in the dark. So to refresh their memory, to get their attention, to help them out, to let them really get something from our devotions, I had a great idea. I had each one of them Go into my bedroom separately, turn off the lights, shut the door, and let them get acquainted with the darkness once again. And I, did the, I let them go in separately as well. So I asked them, when they came out of the darkness, what was it like to be in the darkness? And ironically, I had very different answers, different responses. Silas, my four-year-old, piped up with his eyes wide open with lots of expression and said, I couldn't see anything, Daddy. And as I was in your bedroom, I thought there was a bad guy in the bathroom. 
So I ran to the door to try to open. I couldn't open it, so I started screaming. It was so scary, Daddy. And Luke, my five-year-old, said with fear in his voice, there was a red light shining, Daddy, on the ceiling, and I didn't know what to do about it. I said, are you talking about the smoke detector with the red light on the ceiling? He says, yeah, Daddy, that smoke detector in the dark, it really just scares me to death. The point is my children had to know they were in the dark to understand the gravity of the darkness, right? And likewise, for us to understand Christ saying he is the light of the world, we have to first know we are in a very dark world as well. This leads to point number one. It's very simple. The world is full of darkness. Point number one says the world is full of darkness. But I'm afraid that when I say that the world is dark, it really doesn't register with us very well. I mean, we are in Marco Island, right? Where life is just so good, right? We can collect seashells 365 days a year on the seashore, right? Anytime we want, even during the winter. We have perfect weather all year. Well, almost perfect. Last week it was a little cloudy. But besides that, it was, it's pretty good weather, right? So it is true. God's creation does take our breath away. But even on Marco Island, it is like the rest of the world where money, power, greed, addictions, entertainment, and pleasure run this little island like everywhere else. The reason is simple. The reason is simple. Satan is at work. He works tirelessly to destroy what God is doing. 1 John 5.19, the last half of 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan rules our world system. That's why what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. We can look within the governments around the world. We can look at societies as a whole and see that darkness reigns supreme. I think about abortion alone. And this reveals the darkness of our society. It is staggering. It is heart-wrenching that babies can be murdered on demand under the guise of choice. Even though technology has advanced to the point that doctors know that unborn babies are alive in the womb. I mean, we know at conception, the embryo has its own DNA strand. At 18 days, the heart starts beating. At six weeks, the child has brain waves. At nine weeks, the baby develops nerves that allow the infant to feel pain. And yet, abortion is alive and well. It's illegal And it's legal in the United States. We live in a dark world where Satan and his demons continue to deceive humanity, continue to deceive mankind. And yet Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Jesus does not say he is a a light in the world, but he says he is the light in the world. Amen? Jesus is saying he is the only savior in this dark world. 
Jesus is saying he is the savior even to the, in the, the aborted infants. Even at this very moment, every infant that has been brutally murdered is now safe in the arms of our sovereign God. Amen. All because Jesus is the only light of the world. Do we recognize this morning that Christ is the light of the world? But I must say, as we think about darkness, that we are not in any way innocent bystanders to such darkness. Our hands aren't clean when we think of sin. The darkness that is in the world is in us as well. Listen to Romans 3, 11 and 12. It says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We see here that We were running away from God, not towards him, and it was God who pursued us before we followed him. Christ didn't come to save the good people of the world, but Christ came to save the worst. Amen? Which leads to point number two. We were full of darkness. Point number two says we were full of darkness. Our sinfulness was a way of life. It was part of who we were. John 3 tells us that all men loved the darkness over the light. So it wasn't like we sinned once in a while, but in John 3, we are told we sin daily, habitually, because we loved our sin and we loved the darkness. We love self more than God. We pursued pleasure We pursued power. We pursued happiness. We pursued pride. We pursued anything over God because we wanted to be our own God instead of worshiping the one and only true God. And yet, and yet, Romans 5, 8 tells us, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And at our darkest moment, Christ became the light of our world. He enlightened our darkened heart. Christ lightened our distorted thinking. Christ enlightened our evil behaviors. Christ transformed us from children of darkness to children of light. Let me ask us a question this morning. Did we know that we were such great sinners when we came to Christ? Did we understand the gravity of our depravity when we turned to Christ in repentance and faith? Well, let's go back to our main text, and we're still in John 8, 12, since that's the only verse we're going through this morning. So let's go back there. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus says, he is the light of the world, and we see that we are called to follow him, which means we are called to be disciples of Christ. The question is, what is a disciple of Christ? What is it in our day? Is being a disciple in Jesus' day the same as easy believism in our day? 
And you may be thinking, well, what is exactly easy believism? Well, easy believism is the er erroneous, false teaching that says a person is saved by Christ by just believing facts that Christ is Savior without really truly committing to him. In other words, it's the idea that you believe that Jesus is Savior without submitting to his will. For example, here's a few examples of that. I believe Jesus is Savior, but I really don't believe in the word of God. Or, I believe that Jesus is a Savior, but I'm not. I'm going to continue to live how I want. Or, I believe that Jesus is a Savior, but I don't really want to be a part of the body of Christ. Or, I believe that Jesus is a Savior, but I'm not going to follow what the Bible says. It's saying, I will take Jesus as Savior, but I don't want him as my Lord. It's saying, I want the benefits from Christ without submitting to his will. In a sense, many falsely think they're adding fire insurance for the next life. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card when we're facing God on Judgment Day. Can you imagine how horrible it will go on Judgment Day for someone who holds this false view of believing in Christ this way? Yeah, God, yes, I am your child. Why? Well, you, one time when I was in a church, I raised my hand and I received Christ. Yeah, and after that, I really didn't listen to Christ or I have fellowship with him. I really didn't know Christ or live for him. But you know what? That one day when I was sitting in that church, I raised a hand. Thank goodness for that. I'm afraid many have the shallow view that says, if I could just get my spouse to say a prayer or my friend to make a decision, they are good to go for life. In reality, salvation is given to those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith, which leads to point number three. A disciple is a committed follower of Christ. Point number three says a disciple is a committed follower of Christ. A disciple of Christ lives out their faith wherever they go. The reason a disciple lives out their faith to the world is because it is who they are. It is now their identity. Before I followed Christ, my identity was sinner. So my desire was to sin without even realizing it. But now in Christ, as a disciple, now I have the desire to please God and live for God. I wonder if you see your identity as a disciple of Christ this morning. I wonder if we are maturing in our faith. Are we growing in our relationship with God more today than we were yesterday? Let me give us two distinguishing marks of a genuine disciple of Christ. The first mark of a disciple is this. Disciples of Christ have an unrivaled love for Christ. Mark number one says, Disciples of Christ have an unrivaled love for Christ. Luke 14.26 says this. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife, his children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus here isn't actually advocating or saying that we should hate our family. That would contradict all the rest of what Scripture says. I mean, we know from Scripture that it tells us to honor our fathers and mothers, right? Right? 
But what Christ is doing is using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration to get his point across by showing us how much more we should love him, love Christ above all else. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must love me more than even your own spouse. You must love me more than even your own children. That's what he's saying. The question is, how can we have such love? How can we love God above everything else? I mean, that sounds almost supernatural. Well, Romans 5, 5 tells us, says this, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me read that again. That God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This love is not something we whip up or create in ourselves, but is a supernatural love that God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can also remember that love is one of the fruit of the spirits as well, which again shows us it is God who gives us more love for him. He gives us more love in our marriage. He gives us more love to give to our enemies. It's supernatural. I wonder how much we love Christ this morning. Does our love for God go deeper? Does our love for God go higher than our love for everything else in our life? This love looks like a passionate, a zealous commitment to Christ above all else, which leads to Mark, the second distinguishing mark of a disciple, which says disciples of Christ die to the flesh. Mark number two says disciples of Christ die to the flesh. You might be, think, you might be thinking dying to the flesh sounds sort of morbid, right? But what scripture is talking about is our sinful spiritual nature that still lives within, it still indwells us, and we daily need to put it to death. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Christ says a disciple of Christ will turn from self and carry their cross daily, which means die daily to self, die daily to the flesh and live for Christ Jesus. Dying to self is said in different ways in scripture, but it's talking about the battle that we have with the flesh or the sinful nature, or the KJV calls it the carnal nature. Disciples of Christ wages war against the flesh and now has the ability to overcome the flesh because now the Holy Spirit indwells, lives, resides within them. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here we are commanded to walk by the Spirit and we will not be a slave to sin. The Spirit tells us to live for God's glory while the flesh says live for your own glory. The Spirit says put others above yourselves while the flesh says I deserve to be first. The Spirit says to repent for sin while the flesh says to live, enjoy your sin. Let me ask us this morning if we're battling the sinful nature. Are we walking by the Spirit? Or are we walking, cruising in the flesh? It was John Owen, the great theologian of the 1600s, who said this, Be killing sin, or sin be killing you. 
Let me say that again. It sounds almost like a rap song, but it's from the 1600s. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let me ask the men in the congregation if we are killing sin or is sin killing us in our marriages? Are we killing sin or is sin killing us in the way we parent, in the way we function in the workplace? Are we killing sin or sin killing us? Let me ask you this. How are you doing with lust? Are we careful with our eyes? Are we careful with what we watch on TV as men? Are we careful with what we're looking at on the internet? It's pretty silent in here. Are we learning to love what is right and holy and hate what is wicked? Are we hating our sin? Scripture tells us to confess our sin, turn from it as it dulls our fellowship in Christ. It slowly steals the joy of our salvation, as David would say. God has given each of us, each other, the church body to confide in. We are all fellow strugglers who need help. We can't continue to hide our sin any longer. May we be a people who humble are humble and transparent, willing to be open about our struggles and our sinful battles that we have daily that no one else knows about. What's the old saying about the church? The church isn't a museum for good people, right? But it's a hospital for the broken. That's us. So the next question I would ask is why take up such costly discipleship? Why would anybody want to be a follower of Christ? And let's go back to our main passage, back to John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, for those who follow him, they will have the light of life. Jesus transforms us out of darkness and gives us marvelous light. I think that's a song. Where's Luke at? Can you come play that one for us up here? Um, But yeah, I think that's actually a song. But yes, that's exactly what happens. God transforms us, right, from the darkness to the light. Which leads to point number four. Disciples of Christ are abundantly blessed. Point number four says that disciples of Christ are abundantly blessed. Listen to this list of promises we receive when we become a disciple of Christ. I'm going to go through these quickly so you might not be able to jot them all down. But it says this. A disciple of Christ is redeemed from the slavery of sin. Romans 8.23. A disciple of Christ is delivered from the power of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. A disciple of Christ is reconciled back to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. A disciple of Christ is forgiven from all sin, past, present, and future sin. Colossians 2.13. A disciple of Christ is transferred from kingdom, Satan's kingdom, to God's kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2. 12. A disciple of Christ becomes a member of the family of God. Galatians 6.10. A disciple of Christ is glorified with Jesus. 
Romans 8.30, a disciple of Christ is adopted as a child of God. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, a disciple of Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, a disciple of Christ possesses all spiritual blessings found in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 3, a disciple of Christ receives citizenship of heaven. Philippians 3, 20, a disciple of Christ is granted full access to God. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 20, a disciple of Christ receives an inheritance from God. Ephesians 1, verse 14, is that amazing? This is what God gives us. This is what God does to us. God blesses us when we turn to him in repentance and faith. God gives us what we didn't deserve, right? That's grace. The question this morning is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from self and embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior? Being a disciple of Christ means... He is our first love. We battle to keep our love for Christ first above all else. Amen? There may be some of us here this morning who says, yes, I am a disciple of Christ, but maybe along the way I got sort of caught up in the ways of the world, and now I realize I've turned my back on Christ. And honestly, I sort of feel the conviction, the drawing of the Holy Spirit. And I would say to that person, amen and amen. That shows you're a believer. We should feel conviction when we live in sin. It is the grace of God that the Holy Spirit brings conviction on our hearts. But if that is you this morning, I would encourage you to turn back to God. Confess and repent of your sin. And that sweet fellowship with God that you once experienced will be renewed once again. God is gracious to us. He is so patient with us. He is so forgiving. He won't let us go for his child. May we be children of God who revel in the fact that we are disciples of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We're humbled by the fact that you allow us to be your children, that you draw us by your spirit, transform our, our hearts, our wicked hearts, begin to mold us and shape us and sanctify us by the power of the spirit. Father, I ask if there's those today that are here that have not turned to you in repentance and faith, I ask today would be their day and they would be drawn by you and they could only choose to follow you instead of continuing to waste their life. Father, help us, not only the people that aren't yours, but I ask that you help us that are yours to not waste our lives either. Help us to be faithful every day and live for you and to share the love of Christ with others in humility, but yet still be truthful and honest about what your word says. Help us to be those sort of disciples. Thank you for Christ. In him we pray. Amen.